This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. And today we're going to talk to one of Australia's finest golfers over the last 20 or 30 years. He's a West Australian boy. He did well on the local, national and international stage and has a couple of unique achievements as well. Nick O'Hearn. Nick, welcome to Inspiring Sports Stories. Oh, thanks, Mark. It's uh, very kind to have me on. Mate, um, let's go all the way back to the beginning. You you grew up in Western Australia. Tell us about uh, the place where you grew up and, and how you got involved in sport in the first place. Yeah, sure. My uh, my my parents. Uh, my mum's actually English. My father's uh, Australian. Mum came over on the uh, one of those boats when she was eighteen years old. They call it a ten pound pom, and started life uh, in, up in Midland. And then uh, when I was born, I, I grew up in Morley, so I'm a northern northern suburbs boy. Um, was there till I guess uh, I left home when I was around about twenty twenty one years old. But uh, I got into sports uh, mostly through my dad. He was uh, uh, a really, really good uh, baseball player, played for Australia, state level and all that. And then I had two older brothers, the uh, middle brother, Troy. He was also a state baseballer and, and a really uh, high achiever in that regard. And um, I kind of just followed whatever they did, really. And um, uh, they, my dad started getting into golf uh, when I was at a young age and, and sort of followed suit. And I think it's funny because... Uh, I talked to a lot of people who are um, professional sports people or athletes or whatever, and most of them seem to be the youngest in their family, and there might be uh, something to that because you're always trying to beat the older sibling. And uh, and that was certainly the case with me. I was always trying to uh, beat Troy and whatever I did. So I grew up playing uh, t-ball and baseball, uh, tennis, soccer, basketball, golf, um, a variety of sports. The three sports I, I really resonated to were uh, baseball, tennis and golf um it was probably going to be one of those three which i thought maybe i'd have a chance of playing a, a career at i uh, i made a state team in baseball which was fun never made a state team in golf which is quite quite funny uh tennis i was a good player beat some state level players but never really never really uh played in any big competitions or anything like that and uh i just love the individual nature of golf i guess you could say because the the team sports i played like baseball and basketball and soccer i found that uh, i could play a really good game but we could still lose so I thought, well this sucks and uh, whereas golf it uh, it was really all up to me so that's what fascinated me about it and how i guess i got started in my journey and uh, continued on from there were you a lefty in all those sports nick well uh everything two-handed i'm left-handed so i bat based that left-handed in baseball, um, cricket was the same, and in golf, obviously. But everything one-handed, I was right-handed. So I throw a ball right, play tennis right-handed, but I have a double-handed backhand. And that's actually changed uh, the way I putt these days because I putt right-handed now, but I, I still hit everything else left-handed. So it's a bit of a, a bizarre thing. And I got that from my mum because uh, she was one-hand left-hand, two-hand right-hand. So there must, must have been some genes in there that sort of crossed over. For sure, but uh, people tried to change me early on as a left-handed golfer. They said, "No, you should try right because there's not much equipment around." But I was pretty stubborn back then, and uh, and just wanted to play lefty, so stuck with it. You sound a bit like me, and I actually play golf right-handed now, but only because we never had any left-handed clubs when I was little. So basically, I changed over and 
Um, mm. I, I was very mediocre left-handed at golf, and I'm just mediocre right-handed. So I, I think I'm a better <laughs> right-hander than a left-hander. What um, what spot did you play in baseball? Were you a hitter or a pitcher or um, a, a baseman? What were you? Well, I was uh, mostly a catcher. That was uh, the, the the position I loved the most because it almost the, the catcher sort of sees everything and you kind of control the field. I also was a bit of a pitcher because that's what my my uh, father was and my brother. They were both pitchers, but uh, I, I love the catcher element to to the game. But I also played various positions whenever you know, I was called to do that. But uh, whatever sport I played, I kind of liked to be in control. Maybe that's something about the game of golf as well. Because same in basketball, I was the point guard and. And I love to uh, love to sort of control things, and and in uh, soccer, that a lot of soccer I played, I was sort of a midfielder, so uh, yeah, controlled a lot there. So there must be some control element in, in that regard, I guess. And, and the same with golf, because you're the only one in control, unfortunately, and most of the time you're not. <laughs> um, where did you? How did you get introduced to golf? You mentioned you. I think your father was a very good golfer, maybe played off about three or something like that. Where did he play, and how did you get started? Yeah, I started at a local uh, public course uh, called uh, Embleton, or Royal Embleton as we like to call it, just in Bayswater. Uh, a little nine-hole track about uh, par 31, I think, and there was a couple of pros there, John Mackey and his training pro, Mike Zilko, who I got to know really well, and I um, you know, did some work experience there and, and played a lot of golf there. And then uh, I ended up joining the Mount Lawley Golf Club, uh, which I'm still a member at, fortunately an honorary member, although I'm never there, but... Uh, uh, my brother Troy, who's the general manager there now, and my parents are still members there. They've been there forever. So I joined there when I was about, uh, I think I was around 12 or 13 years old. Usually the, the joining limit was about 14, but um, I guess I showed some promise and they let me in a little early, which was nice. So uh, there was a pro there called Ivan Campbell who sort of took me under his tutelage and uh, sort of showed me the basics of the game. And, and that's really how I got started. I uh, Played all my junior golf there and uh, represented the, the club at pennant level in juniors and then in seniors. Won the junior and senior club championships. One year I was you know, playing my brother in a final for the for the junior club champs, which was quite a lot of fun. Although he got the better of me that that year, unfortunately. So I still hold a bit of a grudge to him on that one, but it was well deserved on his his part. But uh, but that's how I got into the game and. And uh, as I said, I never made any state teams as a junior, so I wasn't actually you know, setting the world on fire uh, as a junior golfer. My brother was a much better golfer than I was. And uh, the lowest handicap I got down to was about a two handicap when I was 16 years old. And then when I actually turned pro, I was off a four handicap at the age of 19. So not the typical path, you could say. So what made you believe that you could make it as a pro, given that sort of profile? Because most professionals will have this extensive junior resume, won't they? They'll play in, in state teams, they'll play in national titles and that sort of thing. So what, what enabled you to maintain the belief that you're good enough to make it as a pro? Well, uh, I think I, I'm a very stubborn person in that regard and, and just always had this belief that for some reason, I thought I could play this game for a living. I remember watching the 1986 Masters when, when Jack Nicklaus won. It was a, a tough one for Aussie fans because Greg Norman, unfortunately, bogeyed the last hole and and, uh, and missed out on a playoff. But I remember watching Jack and how he went about things, and I thought, that's really what I want to do. I'm, I'm going to figure out a way to get there. And even though a lot of people sort of said, well, what are you doing? I mean, you're not good enough. I just thought, well... It's something that I've dreamt of doing for a long, long time and, and really wanted to, I mean, Augusta was almost like a dream world and I thought one day I'm going to get there. And uh, and then when I finished school, um, I had I had a bit of a, I, I guess, a, an option of either to go to university, which I, I never really wanted to do, uh, 
or go work, work in a bank or, or, or maybe look at playing and practicing golf uh, a bit more full time. And uh, I was going for an interview uh, with the Commonwealth Bank, I think it was. And, and the day before that happened, I got a call from the uh, professional level, Ivan Campbell at Mount Lawley, saying, hey, do you want to work part time at the club here and, uh, and, and sort of make a living that way? And I thought, oh, perfect. Great, just great timing. So uh, that was when I sort of went down the pro path. And, and at that stage, being on a four handicap or so, I certainly wasn't good enough, but I thought, well, there is a route to go where I can become a trainee professional, which is what I did at the age of 19. I started that uh, over at the Marangaroo Golf Course with a couple of professionals called Tim Crosby and Craig Duncan. They, uh, they ran the show out there, and, and I really learned the, the art of becoming a club professional, I guess you could say, where you learn to teach, uh, work in a pro shop, how to run a business and things like that. It's a three-year traineeship, and and that's how I became a golf professional in the beginning. And, you know, there's, I guess there's two differences. There's a golf professional and then there's a professional golfer. So the, the pro golfer is the one who plays and the golf professional is the one who teaches and, and works in a shop. And uh, I thought, well, I just want to be a golf pro, whether it's a pro golfer, pro golfer or a golf pro. Um, I'll, I'll take either. But, uh, you know, I obviously wanted to play for a living. And I thought, well, first step is to become a golf professional and then I'll figure out the rest later. What was the part of the game that you had to shift to, to make sure you could make it on tour, do you think? Was that because you've always been watching your swing, it's a very consistent swing, you're able to repeat it, it was very reliable. I'm, I mean, you're watching you from the outside, I would doubt that that was the issue. What, was there another part of your game that you needed to get better at to, uh, to make it on tour? Well, funnily enough, that, that was the area which that was I really it, was it? Work yeah. On. yeah, well, we, where we grew up in Morley, we had a park across the road and uh, you know, every day after school I'd be over there with my wedge and, and just knocking the ball around and, until they put a sign up eventually. No golf, but sometimes even that didn't stop me, unfortunately. So <laughs> I got kicked off the park a couple of times. But um, no, we, you know, when I finished my traineeship, uh, I married uh, my wife, Alana, uh, I was 22, she was 21, which is obviously a very young age, but when you know, you know, and, and fortunately we're, we're still together to this day. But uh, after we got married, I said to Alana, look, you know, I want to play this game for a living. Um, and she said, well, you're not really good enough. So, <laughs> uh, so, so, so let's get to work. So over the next few years, I continued working part-time in the, at the golf club. Uh, ended up working up at Caramar, another public course up in the northern suburbs under Tim Crosby because they expanded their uh, their operations and then um, and I just kept working at my game and just trying to figure out how to how to shoot lower scores and if anything I probably went backwards and after about two or three years of doing this I think I was about 24 or 25 Alana and I we, we sort of sat down we had a massive turning point basically and, and that was at a, a golf tournament up in Geraldton called the Sporting Park Open and I've been playing pro-am circuits for a few years just around Australia with very little success and and I managed to shoot something like 86, 88, 82 to finish dead last in this uh, tournament. And in the car park afterwards, Alana and I, we had a real heart-to-heart. She just said, look, we need to get our act together here. If you're going to do this for a living, you need to have some path, some direction. And uh, at that, in that moment, we actually came up with a, with a three-year plan, much like a business plan, where we set out some strategies and looked at the areas I needed to improve, which number one was my golf swing because I didn't understand my swing at all. I, I hit the ball sideways. Uh, I had a great short game because I, I had to because um, I was always in the trees and that and I, I used to get it up and down for bogey a lot of times. So the golf swing was a real uh, a real uh, emphasis on that and also the, the I needed to work with a sports psychologist to get my, my mental game in, in some sort of shape because I, I thought terribly on the golf course 
And as it turned out, the mental game became one of my strengths throughout my career. And then uh, the other area was to just get fitter and stronger and start working out in, working out in the gym. And uh, I like to joke around. I said, well, you know, apart from my golf swing, my mental game and my fitness, I was world-class already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that sort of put me on the path. And it's funny when you, when you put a plan in place like that, a three-year plan, how the right people come into your life at the right time. And that's when I met uh, a pro called Neil Simpson, who just taken over as the head professional at Mount Lawley. Uh, I started working with him on my full swing and we just clicked straight away. He was, he's very old school, uh, tells it how it is. And during our first lesson, he, he uh, watched me hit about half a dozen shots and he looked at me and he says, really, you're, you're a pro? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I know it doesn't look very pretty, but I'm, uh, I love to work hard and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do whatever you tell me. And, uh, and, and he really formed a lot of the fundamentals in my golf swing that, carried me through my entire career and because uh, up until that point I really didn't understand much about my game and, uh, Nick we'll take so a break a lot of fun. we'll take a break there and uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about the the things that underpin your swing that we have come to know as the the golf pro that you you became this is inspiring sports stories thanks to Bauer and O'Day don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. And we're speaking to Nick O'Hearn, a wonderful Australian golfer who was one of our most consistent players over a 20-year period and got up into the top 20 in the world. Nick, you weren't always in the top 20 in the world. We talked about the bumpy start to your pro career and you teamed up with Neil Simpson. Tell us what he sorted out about your swing to, to give you the reliable swing that we came to know. Yeah, Neil really, I guess, in the first few lessons emphasised the uh, ball flight. Um, you know, it's about carrying the ball certain distances and, and my swing, there wasn't any width to it. It was very narrow, so I couldn't carry the ball a long way. And uh, we, all, we always set a goal of, okay, let's see if we can carry your three iron 190 metres, 185 metres. I can't remember exactly what it was because at that point I could, could hardly get a three iron in the air because my goal swing just wasn't anywhere good enough. And uh, a lot of that had to do with the way that the, the lower half worked, funnily enough, the, the hip action, how you turn through the ball to create the necessary width to then get the ball traveling through the air a little bit better and um, I used to practice a lot at the Mount Lawley Golf Club obviously growing up and and as a young pro and uh, uh, I'd always head down the back of the range because the way the range was was uh, situated uh, if I went down the back then I'd be hitting into the sea breeze the afternoon for a mental doctor and, and Neil got me working on shots where he said okay when you're hitting shots into the wind I want you to hit it high and yet the wind won't affect it so I had to kind of take spin off the ball, which was fascinating. So I had to learn how to do that. And, and that's all about creating width and being shallow through the ball. So, um, so that's where it sort of all started for me with Neil. And, and uh, you know, those fundamentals really carried me throughout my career. The consistency came from just working more on ball flight and just getting the ball to spin a little bit less so it didn't get affected as much uh, whenever I was playing in different conditions. And it also came about through... As I said earlier, uh, I started working with a sports psychologist who was Neil McLean. He worked for the West Coast Eagles uh, at the time. Of my, my wife rang the football club up and said, uh, who's your sports psychologist? And they said, oh, it's Neil McLean. So I, I booked uh, an appointment with him and then started working with him over the next few years, and well, for a long time, actually. 
And uh, the mental guidance he gave me really built in the consistency of how to think on the golf course. And that's probably the most um, undervalued area, I would say, of any golfer out there is that mental game. We all know it's so important, but do people really pay attention to it? And I work my butt off in that regard. And that's probably where my consistency came from. And because uh, whether I hit a good shot or a bad shot, it just didn't affect me anymore, whereas before it used to. And uh, and having the right processes and the right routines in place, along with a solid swing, I already had, already had the short game, but I started putting all the pieces of the puzzle together and slowly but surely I started improving. Was the progress quick or was it gradual? And were, were there times when you didn't think it was going to work? Like how long did it take before you knew you were going to be a viable professional golfer? Yeah, well, the, the, the original goal, you know, we, we made this three-year plan and Alana and I sat down and said, right, what's the goal here? Well, okay, in three years, I want to have a full playing rights or full status on the Australasian Tour, meaning I could play you know, each season and without having to go back to Q school or anything like that. And that first year, it was just a steady progression, really. I ended up winning a few pro-ams. I went to the qualifying school in Australia, got my card, and then everything changed just uh, shortly after that. Uh, at the Australian Open in 1997 at Metropolitan, where I Monday qualified to get into the tournament because I wasn't exempt into the actual tournament. So they have a Monday qualifying beforehand to, to get in, which I, I snuck in on the number. I ended up carrying my own bag the first round because uh, I couldn't afford a caddy and Alana was back working a temp job in Perth. And I ended up shooting, I think, 67 the first day, so I was up near the lead. Uh, that night, uh, Alana flew the red eye across from Perth and I picked her up Friday morning from the airport and we went straight out to the Metropolitan because I had an early morning tea time. We went out and shot uh, 66 and all of a sudden I was leaving the Australian Open. And I'll never forget that Saturday morning. We were waking up, waking up here in Melbourne. We were staying with some friends and the back page of the Herald Sun, it said Nick Ohu. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> which, was, uh, which was quite funny. And um, as it turned out, I didn't win the tournament. I think uh, Lee Westwood went on to beat uh, Greg Norman in a playoff. I ended up finishing fifth. And the amount of money that I earned from finishing fifth gave me fully exempt status here in Australia. So the three-year plan that we put in place was achieved in about 15 or 16 months. So it's just amazing, the power of goal setting. And... I would imagine the relief of knowing that you had money in the bank to play with as well. I've giving a, being a professional golfer, I guess that's always the pressure, isn't it? Money to live. And, and that would have been a, a big release for you as well. It certainly was. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing with professional golf is there really is no security in this game unless you win a golf tournament and you can get a two year or three year exemption, depending on which tournament you win. And uh, for me, it's always been a year by year basis uh, for most of my career. And, just having that assurity that I was like, right, okay, I have a job. I have somewhere to play next year was was very, very important. And uh, the thing was, it was only in Australia and the Australian season wasn't that long. It was probably four or five months long. And, and then we had to figure out, okay, what's next? Where do we go from here? Uh, if I want to you know, become a, a touring pro all over the world. And one of the best things we did for the following year was to head to America to play uh, mini circuits for about three or four months. And and they're a real, a real grind, and, and it really shows you uh, what your game's all about because they have all these mini tour circuits around America where you can, you enter and you pay about five or six hundred dollars, which is pretty expensive, and you basically play for your own money against fifty to a hundred other guys who have also put in that amount of money. So uh, it's sort of a dog eat dog mentality, but you learn so much about your game and uh, and also just how to become a professional. Travel week in, week out, go to different venues 
play in different conditions. And Alana and I came across to America for you know about four months, three months or so. And as it turned out, I won the second last event uh, that I was over there playing, which paid for the whole trip, which was awesome. And then when, when I went back to Australia, I just raised another level or two in the way my game had just developed. So uh, it was just a, a steady progression up that ladder. And and then after that, uh, it was like, okay, so where do we go from here? And I entered the second stage of US qualifying school, which uh, I had an exemption to that through the Australasian tour because I finished fairly high up on the order of merit. Um, the best thing was I went to that second stage and I missed. I didn't get my card, which, and I say the best thing because in a way it was a blessing. I wasn't ready to apply in America at that stage. My game hadn't fully developed enough. So after that, instead, I went to the European qualifying school where I was exempt into the final stage. And, and that's where we uh, I managed to get the 26th card out of about 35. So uh, we started our journey on the European tour. And that was the best thing for my game because you learn so much playing that tour. What's the difference between being a good player in Europe and being a good player in America on the PGA Tour? I think uh, the, the top players on both tours, uh, there's really no difference. I mean, if, if you're one of the best players in Europe, you could be one of the best players in, Amer- in America as well. It's just, I think once you get down to that 50th or 100th spot, then America is a little bit deeper. They just have that extra strength there. But, you know, probably the top 30, 40, 50 players are very, very similar. And uh, I slowly but surely work my way up in Europe. The first year is always tough, uh, the toughest. And you look a year on every any tour is really tough and and that first year what happens is the top 115 players keep their card for the next year and and i was able to uh, finish 108 which was just by the skin of my teeth but it was just enough and that first year in europe was a real eye-opener because every week you're going to a different country a different course a different language a different culture and as i said before you learn so much about your game playing in europe whereas in america it's a bit uh groundhog day-ish where it's very similar week in week out so to develop my game, Europe was an amazing path. And after that, slowly but surely, I just steadily worked my way and I improved every year and slowly got my way up into the top 15 in the world rankings. And that was when I uh, took the step across to play in America. When you first went to America and you mentioned those mini tours you're playing, how were you getting around and what sort of places were you going to to play golf? Oh, well, we started in, uh, of all places, Philadelphia, which is a long way from Perth, let me tell you, that's a, that's a few flights to get over there. And uh, the reason being was because there was a, a Nike Tour event, which is a secondary tour back in those days. Now it's called the Corn Ferry Tour. And what I was trying to do was Monday qualify into the, the Nike Tour events. And if I missed out, well, then I'd play the local mini tour. Um, that first one in Philadelphia, though, I'd, I'd managed to get an invitation because of my finish in the Australian Open. Uh, I wrote to the tournament and they gave me a start there. So we started there and then just basically worked our way across America. And, and it's really just about renting a car, um, never driven on the right-hand side of the road. So that was fascinating, coming out of the Philadelphia airport for the first time. Almost crashed the car a couple of times. And, and they also gave us a manual, which wasn't much fun. So if you're on the right, wrong side of the car and you're trying to operate a manual where the gear shift is in, on your left instead of the right, uh, sorry, the, the the right instead of the left. Come see, I'm confused already. <laughs> and uh, you know, and then we just basically drove across America, and we ended up making our way all the way down south, you know, into the Carolinas and Georgia, and uh, through the Midwest. Uh, ended up going through Kansas, uh, and then and back over, ended up over in California, basically. So uh, the tournament I won was actually up in North Dakota. So we ended up all the way up there playing an event as well. So. 
I tell you, we covered some miles, but you learn so much about yourself and you stay in some absolute dives. But, you know, it's it's what you see in the movies and it can be a lot of fun, but there's some pretty rough times at the same uh, in the same breath. We'll take a break there and we'll come back to talk about the highlights of Nick's professional playing career, which are to follow soon after this period of time. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Nick O'Hearn, one of Australia's finest golfers over the last 20 or 30 years. Nick, you've reached a point where you've got the ability to play on tours and you start winning professional events. You have six pro tour wins all up. Which is your favourite? What do you remember most fondly? Oh, it'd have to be the uh, Australian PGA in 2006, uh, which was at the Coolum Resort up there in Queensland. I, I'd won the 1999 Coolum Classic there, and that golf course, I'll tell you, if I could have played that every week, uh, I probably would have been number one in the world because it just fit my eyes so well for some reason, being a, a short-hitting lefty. But um, that one, it, it's funny, people often ask, what's your, what's your best moment and what's your worst moment in professional golf? And it actually happened within about an hour of each other, the... Uh, as it turned out, on the final hole of the golf tournament, uh, Peter Lonard and I, we'd sort of um, teed off in the last group together. We were well ahead of the third, so it was a bit of a two-horse race for the title. And we would go neck and neck the whole day. And I had a, a one-shot lead coming down the 72nd hole and ended up having a three-foot putt to win the golf tournament. And everyone thought it was over. And unfortunately, I missed it. So I wanted to uh, dive into a hole and just and just hide for a while, but uh, you know, I only had to uh, had to get back into a playoff, and then four holes later in the playoff, uh, I managed to hold a bunker shot and, and win the tournament. So uh, it was one of those days which was full on emotional uh, roller coaster, you could say. And and I always remember it because my my entire family was there: my wife, my my two girls who had recently been born, and also my parents. So uh, we had a, a very good party that night. I can assure you. I'm sure you did. How do you get yourself back together when? The tournament looks to be yours, and then you you miss a putt like that. You mentioned you you developed a very even temperament, but I'd imagine you would need it in a situation like that. Yeah, that was a tough one to take. I remember being in the scoring hut, just sort of burying my head in my hands, thinking, what have I just done? But uh, that's when a really good caddy comes into it. And uh, Wilbur, uh, who, was, who was my caddy, he was brilliant. He just said, mate, we haven't lost it. We're still in it. Let's, let's get your head back in the game and regroup and, and go from there. You're playing really well. And I was. I was playing fantastic. I think we shot 22 under for the four days. So playing a lot of good golf. The, the three-putt just came at the wrong time, obviously. It was a bit to do with nerves. I was I was a bit worried about, um, you know, I was think, more, thinking more about my victory speech than the three-foot putt, <laughs> which is never a good thing. But I learned my lesson. And that in the first playoff hole, I had the exact same putt. Uh, but this time to extend the playoffs, and I thought, well, okay, I've learnt my lesson. Let's make this this time and and get on with it. So I did, and uh, and my caddy was great throughout that. He just kept my head where it should have been, and and then the whole bunker shot was was a bit of it's one of those lucky breaks that you need to win tournaments, and it just happened to fall my way. What sort of bunker shot was it? Long, short, uphill, downhill? What was it? Uh, yeah, we were over the back of the green, and it wasn't very long, but it was straight downhill, had water beyond the flag, so I had to catch it pretty well, otherwise it, it may go into the water if I thin it a little bit, but it just came out perfectly, and 
it was going with a little bit of speed when it went in, but it would have only gone about four or five feet past. And sort of halfway there, I kind of knew, okay, this has a chance. And, you know, it's it's up to the, the luck of the gods as to whether it goes in. And, and the relief when it went in was just ridiculous. I always remember you using a broomstick putter. When did you start doing that and 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 why? Why did you choose the broomstick? Uh, yeah, from uh, I think when I finished my traineeship as an early young pro, uh, I'd have used a short putter up until that point. But I was struggling with my putting at the time and it wasn't for the yips or anything. It was just going through a bad patch. And I was watching uh, this short, stocky guy on the Aussie Tour winning everything with a long putter. And I thought, oh, OK, maybe I should try that. And, you know, it was Peter Senior, obviously. He was one of the first to use the long putter. And as soon as I picked it up, I loved it. And it just turned my uh, my putting around. And I used it throughout my entire career up until about probably six or seven years ago, just towards the end of my flying career. And uh, they brought the anchoring ban in where you can't anchor the long putter. And I started tinkering around with a short putter. And um, uh, I, I tried the short left and I hadn't done that for 20 something years and, and just felt horrible. And I was a little bit yippy with it, to be honest. And I played nine holes one day for a bit of fun, right-handed, uh, just to see what I could shoot. I've always, always wondered. But I had 14 putts for nine holes, and I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. Why is this? And as it turned out, when I thought about it, if I was to roll the ball to the hole, I'd do it with my right hand, not my left. So uh, the art of putting is given it's a different game. Uh, I thought, I'll try right-handed putting. And I've been doing it ever since, and I putt just as well, if not better, with a short right-handed putter. So I always joke with people, I've made the biggest change in the history of putting. I've gone from long left to short right. <laughs> Tell us about your time on the PGA Tour of America. Um, how did you find that and, um, and and how do you feel you coped? I loved it. Yeah, we, we moved over. We were going to move over in 2006, but um, with our second daughter, Hallie, uh, we had some issues with her. And uh, as in trying to, um, for her to come along, we, Alana and I, we had to go through IVF to get both our kids. And it was quite a process. But uh, yeah, we I started going across there probably in around 2003, four. Uh, 2005 was there for the President's Cup and, and really just enjoyed it over there because it was just uh, you're playing against the best players in the world week in, week out. They treated you like, you know, you wouldn't believe every week you got a brand new car to drive around. The hotels were incredible. Everyone spoke the same language, whereas in Europe, obviously, it's just a different culture every week. Um, I think the thing I liked about it is, is the family could travel with me a bit more. In, the, in Europe, it was very hard to do that because hotels and there wasn't really any uh, daycare or anything like that for the kids. Uh, whereas in America, they just they lay it on for you, uh, you know, like you couldn't believe. There's tickets to go to uh, theatre, museums, ballparks, whatever whatever you want over there, and they uh, they treat the players just incredibly well. So uh, once we got a bit of a taste of it, we thought, okay, let's head over. And uh, originally moved into Craig Perry's house. Actually, he had a a, res- uh, a golfing estate called Isleworth. Uh, he had a house there that he was renting and he said well why don't you live in our house for a year and see if you like it and as it turned Isleworth was where uh, Stuart Appleby lives uh, still lives to this day at the time Tiger Woods was living there until he hit that fire hydrant obviously and, and a lot of the golfers like Charlie Howell and Retief Goose and it was very much a professional golfing community so uh, so we loved it over there and uh, ended up moving back here about four years ago uh, after I stopped playing golf and, and sort of settling back into life in Australia. Did your game suit the American tour? I, d- I don't remember you being a long hitter. So did that affect your ability to, to win tournaments over there? Yeah, there were certain courses I got to where I thought this is going to be a tough week uh, because the courses just seemed to get longer and longer. I think ever, ever since Tiger um, you know, decimated the Augusta National in 1997, 
a lot of the golf courses started lengthening the courses and uh, that made it pretty tough for someone like me where I was very much a short hitter. I was very accurate and I had a good iron game and a good short game but length became a factor I guess in the later stages of my career but there were other courses where it just didn't really matter. I mean I loved venues like uh, Hilton Head was always great for me. Colonial, I loved it there. The Memorial Jacks tournament was brilliant. Um, a lot of the courses in Texas where it was firm and fast, kind of Australian conditions, I always seemed to do quite well. So, yeah, we, Europe may have suited my game a little bit more with the varying conditions, whereas in America it's sort of uh, is a bit much of a very much the same every week. But uh, there were certain courses that really favoured me, but. Yeah, probably. You know, if, if we could have played the European tour with the American lifestyle, that would have been the ideal fit for me, obviously. But you can't do that. And uh, you've just got to adapt your game to uh, to what's in front of you. You played in two President's Cups. What was that like? Oh, incredible. Yeah, the, the first one was a very much an eye-opening experience. It was in Washington, D.C. And we got to visit the White House, which was really cool. Uh, meet uh, George W. Bush. Uh, unfortunately... Alana couldn't be with me that trip. She, we were working on getting our second child, and as I said, we had a bit of issue with IVF and everything. So I went, uh, Neil Simpson came with me, and um, we had a great time over there. And Just the crowds, the noise, the, the team aspect, which was very unusual for me because the last time I played in a team was probably pennant golf as a junior back at uh, Mount Lawley days. But uh, at this point, I was probably in my mid-30s, I'd say or early 30s, and to have, be playing alongside 11 of the other best players in the world from an international perspective was incredible. Gary Player was our coach. Ian Baker-Finch was an assistant uh, captain. Uh, and then the American team was just so, so strong. And we had a real shot at winning that one. We came very close, but uh, they got us on the last day, unfortunately. It's going to be my next question. Why can't we beat them, Nick? We've got great <laughs> players from all over the world, and, and they seem to get us. And they seem to get us in, in one part of the format, don't they? The, is it the foursomes? They, they, they seem to really outplay us there. Yeah, the, the, I think the issues we have as the international team, is, I mean, when I was playing in it, it was 15. Well, I played in a couple. That was a long time ago. But uh, we never, because we come from all parts of the world, we almost didn't feel like a team in, in, in that regard. And I think um, the problem also was six months before the President's Cup, we really should have been starting to look at, OK, who's going to be in the team? Why don't we start playing practice rounds together? get to know each other and, and really start to develop a, a team bond and a unity, which is what they're doing now. I know Trevor Immelden did it um, as a captain. Ernie Els did it as a captain. I think Mike, we're the next captain. He'll be doing that as well. So you've really got to look well in advance as to what's the core group going to look like. There might be 20 to 30 guys who have a chance of being in it and really start to develop that team unity. Whereas when I was playing it, we just showed up on the Monday and we said, oh, okay, hey, Vijay Singh, any else? You're in the team, great. Okay, let's kind of get to know each other in our games. And, and it was pretty tough back then to, uh, to de- develop the, um, the cohesion, I guess you could say, uh, that was required in winning. And, and the Americans were different because they would play the Ryder Cup for every other year. So they already had that team bond and unity. And Europe was a, you know, another force as well. They were the they were beating the Americans all the time, so they were even more dominating. But uh, for us to go in there and try and get over the Americans was always very, very tough. We'll take a break there. We'll come back. We'll talk to you about your two victories over Tiger Woods in match play, which probably why match play is one of your favourite formats of the game, I'd imagine. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Nick O'Hearn. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. And welcome back to Inspiring Sports Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. And we're talking to Nico Hearn, uh, one of our best golf products over the last 20 or 30 years and a great young West Australian boy, although he's not that young anymore, um, into the bargain. Nick, you are, as I understand it, the only person to record two victories over Tiger Woods at the WGC Match Play Championship. When did those occur and uh, what was that like? Uh, yeah, they were in 2005 and 2007 uh, at the World Match Play. And uh, it was what was it like? It was pretty cool, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the first time uh, it was... We were playing at a course called La Costa um, Resort, which is in Carlsbad, California. And I was going in, obviously, as a, a massive underdog. And uh, sort of my caddy and I sat down the night before and thought, okay, how are we going to beat this guy? He's number one in the world, uh, obviously dominating force in golf. What's, what's the story? And we sort of came up with a theory of, at that particular point, Tiger had never won a major coming from behind. He'd only ever won when he was at leading or tied for the lead. And... I was kind of treating this as like the final round of a major. And uh, so we thought, okay, if we can get ahead of him, we've got a chance. If we get behind, we're in trouble. Um, as it turned out on the first hole, I had about an eight-foot putt for par uh, to halve the hole. And as I'm lining the putt up, my caddy walks behind me and says to me, Nick, this is for the match, <laughs> which is a very big call to say. But uh, he knew that would really focus and lock me in. And sure enough, I rolled it in, birdied the next two, uh, got up two after three. And uh, I never lost the lead and, and won that one three and one. Um, I didn't actually have much time to think about it because I had to go back out that afternoon and, and play Luke Donald in the afternoon, which I, who I beat as well. So it was a pretty cool day. And later on, I thought about it and thought, yeah, that was, uh, that was something pretty special. And, uh, and then a couple of years later, 2007, same tournament, but we're at a different venue in Tucson, Arizona. And I knew no one had ever beaten Tiger twice. And this was at a time in his career where he was trying to break Byron Nelson's record of back in 1945, Byron won 11 tournaments in a row and leading in the match by Tiger won seven in a row. So, uh, so I was sort of up against it and uh, for sure the crowd did not want me to win that day. But I stuck to the theory again, let's get ahead early and, and, uh, and, and see if we can hold on. And as it turned out, he started just playing really poor golf to begin the round. And uh, I was four up through seven, which is right where I wanted to be. But he turned his game around, as he always does, figures out a way and, and uh, pegged me back to level with, uh, through 16 with two to go. Uh, I won the 17th to go one up. He birdied the last. We went to extra holes and, and I ended up getting him uh, on the 20th. So uh, that was a lot of fun. My theory holds true. If you get ahead of Tiger Woods, you can beat him. But I remember walking back into the locker room after that second one because it was leading into the quarterfinals and everyone in the locker room just looked at me and said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What was he like? Because it, it seems like other golfers could get intimidated by being, you know, same tea time as Tiger. What was he like for you to play head to head? Yeah, it was it was intriguing. He he had one of those, uh, you know, auras about him. I guess you could say, uh, you know, of that invincibility type uh, factor. But the good thing about being an Aussie, and, and maybe it's just me, or, or I'm sure there are plenty of others out there, we just don't really care about that. <laughs> So I kind of went out with it like, right, I'm going to do my thing, play my game, and then I'll pick my moments to uh, to attack and go from there. But I, I remember in the first match early on, when he teed off the first hole, I mean, I had never seen 
him hit a ball at this stage in person. And the thing went off like a cannon. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't watch this. So <laughs> I actually looked away when he teed off for the rest of the day. And uh, I'd never watched him tee off. So that was probably something that helped me along the way there. But but he was fine out on the golf course as far as, um, you know, we didn't really talk much. But in match play, you never do. And at the end, he, he always said, you know, well played. Um, good luck for the rest of the tournament. So he was very classy in that regard. But I'm sure deep down, he was like, geez, that, that mongrel. <laughs> <laughs> you got to number 16 in the world. From where you'd come from, did you pinch yourself when you got to that level? Uh, looking back, I'd probably go, wow, okay, that's really, really cool. At the time, I actually thought, right, I'm 16, I've got 15 more to go, but uh, which is a really weird thing to say, obviously, but but that's kind of the mentality you have to have. But, you know, where after my career sort of stopped and people would comment on it, um, uh, I guess, yeah, looking back, I thought, hmm, yeah, you did okay for someone who was a four handicapper when they turned pro to, to reach that level and... Uh, and number and top fifty in the world is really where you want to be in golfing terms because then you can pick and choose your schedule. You can play anywhere in the world that you want. And I was probably in there for about five years or so. So, so that was a really cool record. Number sixteen was great. I would have loved to have gotten top ten, but you know, starting out as a when I was making that three year plan, I was just hoping to get a cut on the Australasian tour. So I think it all worked out pretty well in the end. What's your favourite major memory? Oh, favourite major memory. Uh, I, I came close to winning one uh, in 2006, the one Jeff Ogilvy won at Wingfoot. Yep. That was uh, the US Open always suited me really well because because I wasn't a very flashy player. I was, you know, had, I used to make a lot of pars, throw in the odd birdie. The US Opens were a real tough test, and and I had a I had a real chance that final day, even though you know no one really remembers or because no one remembers who who doesn't win, obviously. But the, the leaders were playing. They were teeing off, and they were about one or two over. I was nine over starting the final day, and my caddy, Wilbur, said to me, Nick, if you can get to five over par, I reckon we've got a good chance. And I said to my caddy, Wilbur, I said, mate, we're nine over par for a reason. This is one of the hardest golf courses I've ever played. How am I going to shoot four under? And he said, no, you're playing well. It's all good. You never know. And as it turned out through nine holes, I was four under, and I was at the five over mark just as the leaders were teeing off. So I thought, right, if I can par the back nine, I've got a really good chance here, but the back nine of you know, Sunday on a US Open course is really tough. And I, I ended up shooting three over the back and finished in a tie for six. But that whole day was was just one of my favourite memories of just being in the hunt and having an action, having a chance. And if I wasn't going to win it, it was great to see a fellow Aussie win. So it was just such a blast. That was a tough day, wasn't it? I remember that day being an absolute war of attrition for the top end and then Phil Mickelson um, going via the Cape on the last hole. And, yeah. uh, and Nick had, uh, sorry, Jeff had been steady enough to... Um, to put something on the board that was uh, good enough to win. Mm, yeah, it was just a US Opens were so tough, just incredibly difficult golf course. The year after at Oakmont, I mean, I shot 15 over par and finished 20th. I think that's how tough the golf course was. But uh, I always loved the Masters as well. They were playing that Augusta was something just very, very special, and I'm so glad I got to go there. And then playing, I think I played two two Opens at uh, St Andrews. I probably played about half a dozen British Opens, but the two at St Andrews were just so special. And I, I do remember sitting on the clubhouse steps one day watching all the greats uh, play a four-hole exhibition. You know, you had Trevino and Sneed and Nicholas and all those guys, Palmer, uh, playing. And I was just sitting there watching them play and come in. I always remember that day for sure. Do you like the game now? The split tours? I love and, it. Do you? Yep. What, what do you yeah. like most about oh, it? Oh, I just, as in professional golf or just golf in general? Um, well, let's start with professional golf. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, professionals golf is getting a little bit out of hand money wise at the moment, obviously with, 
the live tour that's come along we've, we've just had the live event in adelaide i was there doing radio with, with sen and uh, it opened my eyes to what the whole experience is about that's for sure uh i came away thinking there is there is certainly a place in the game for it um but at the same time i think if you're serious about winning pga sorry uh, major championships well probably the pga tour and the dp world tour would be a better route because you're going to be testing yourself every week against the best players in the world with a cut and and really having to grind things out it just feels a bit more of an exhibition to live golf uh, for me but it's certainly a place in the game for it um as far as uh you know watching all the up-and-coming developing players here in australia in professional golf i love just you know seeing the talent coming through we have a lot of talent on both the men's and women's side and and I get to do the TV commentary at the moment as well on all, a lot of the golf tournaments here in Australia. So I love talking about the game, and it's just uh, it's just such a passion of mine. Where do you play golf now? Uh, I'm an ambassador for the National Golf Club, which is uh, down at the Mornington Peninsula. They have three courses. Uh, there's also one at Long Island, so they have four clubs. So I love playing down there and being a part of the club. Uh, I'm a member at Cathedral, which is a couple of hours away. Uh, up uh, a golf course that David Evans has built up there, which is just so unique, and it's it's actually got my wife playing golf and my daughters as well. So that's something I never thought I'd ever see happening. And my my wife is hooked on the game now, and you know she's followed me around the world for twenty or thirty years, and now she's playing golf. So it's brilliant. Um, and I'm also a member at Woodlands, which is reciprocal with uh, the Mount Lawley Golf Club. But I'm I'm rarely there to be honest. What's your favourite course? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I always go with top three in that regard because you know, it's hard to hard to pick. It's like trying to pick your favourite uh, child, I think. <laughs> um, I love the old course at St Andrews. That's just so unique. Uh, absolutely fascinating how it changes every time I've played there. Cypress Point is another one in California. Just the views are incredible. And, and then the Royal Melbourne Golf Club here in Melbourne, is, it's, it's hard to go past that one as well. So there's my top three for you. No particular order. <laughs> Nico Hearn, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for sharing your time with us and uh, we wish you all the best in your future endeavours. This has been Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Barrett and O'Day. We've been talking to Nico Hearn. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.